All right. Brother Brian, why do you have to preach so hard? Now, I remember going to a church up in Ohio. That's where I'm from. They had a week revival there. They had some big name pastor come in to preach. Told jokes all week. Packed out the house. They had a bunch of rewards and prizes for those who brought in the greatest number of people can fill up pews. The very last night, he preached a message on hell. And he told jokes the whole time. And I vowed I would never do that. It was a foul thing. So when I preach on hell, I preach to everybody as if they're lost. When I preach on heaven, I try to minister the Word of God. I try to preach to everybody as if they're saved. I have no idea who's who. I let God sort it out. So that's why I have preached so hard. Now, I want us to turn to Romans chapter number 1. I am bringing the marker board back front and center so I could write a couple of terms down. So, we have, are familiar with the term revelation. Okay? It is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is uniquely tied to the doctrine of inspiration. Remember that? Inspiration, revelation, illumination, revelation. And there's a couple of different avenues that God uses to deal with people as he reveals truth. One is called general revelation. And the other is special revelation. Now, general revelation has to do primarily with two things. Number one, it has to do with that revelation that we're fixing to study right now, the revelation of God through creation. And the other one has to do with the revelation of God through the conscience. They're general revelations, meaning everybody has access to them. The general revelation is insufficient to save a sinner. It provides enough knowledge about God to the sinner to the point where they are conscious that there is a God. They are conscious that there is a problem between themselves and God. But they don't know how to fix it. Their recommendation is religion. False religion. But a religion that somehow that will address and satisfy the conscience of men. And so being that general revelation is incapable of saving any sinner, 
There has to be something called special revelation to take place to bring in an individual who is lost, alienated from God, blinded by his sin, to have a saving interest and knowledge to be saved. And that saving interest and knowledge is what we would call a saving interest in Christ or saving knowledge in Christ. God has to go out of his way to save the sinner. And if God does not go out of his way to save the sinner, the sinner is confined to whatever light he has in general revelation. And it's not enough. That's all he has. And yet he is accountable to seeking the Lord for salvation, a Lord that he has no knowledge of apart from the word of God as it's preached. And so, in chapter 1, verse number 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the, to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He just laid out in simple terms, and we have spent much time on this. He has laid out in specific terms that the only way a man can be saved is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation, and it is the gospel. And apart from this gospel, there is no salvation. Believe in God all you want to, but it is not a saving faith until you have a close encounter of the heavenly kind. You have to have an encounter with Jesus Christ through the gospel message. And if the gospel has never come home to your heart, if Jesus Christ has never been revealed to your wicked, depraved heart, religious as you might be, you are yet unconverted. He goes on further to say, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The gospel reveals two things. It reveals the righteousness of God in verse 17, and also reveals the wrath of God in verse 18. Both the righteousness of God and the revelation of God's wrath are tied to the first coming of Jesus Christ and is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've addressed that already. And those of you that are here perhaps, and have not been involved in the series of messages of which we have been preaching on, you got a whole list of CDs out there waiting on you. You get caught up. Now, tonight, we are now dealing with verses 18b through verse 32, which explain how the wrath of God displayed in verse 18 is against all those who seek to suppress the truth and why it is justified. The last time you and I were together, we went into great detail as to how, 
how sinners suppress the truth. Okay? And we are going to go into further detail as to how this is done. It was noted then that verses 19 to 21 define this suppression of truth as the truth of God disregarded. It must be noted then that the revelation of the wrath of God is justified because men have disregarded the truth of God in creation and are without excuse. Verses 19 to 21. For the wrath of God, it says in verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because that, in verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, I'm going to start tonight with verses 19 and 20, and if we have time, we're going to put Brother Archie on the hot seat. If we don't have time, brother, you'll have another week to prepare, and we'll start off with you right out of the gate. Okay? So having said that, let's begin. The general revelation of God's creation makes all men responsible. Verses 19 and 20. It says here in verse number 19, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Note the phrase, because that which may be known of God. Known, the word known, is the Greek word nostos. It is the word we get the Gnostics from. It is an adjective in this case, referring to things known. Or what things can be known of God by and through the testimony of creation. Such a statement implies that there are invisible things of God that can be known by creation alone and other invisible things that cannot be known by creation. Okay? The invisible things of God. And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Now, what things are not revealed in creation? Well, things such as God's mercy, God's grace, God's righteousness, God's justice. I mean, when you go outside and look up at the stars tonight, do you think of the justice of God? Um, not me. Wow! That's deep! Try doing it holding a hot cup of cappuccino on a cold, wintry night with your sweet wife next to you. Because in the winter, it's the clearest of all. 
And you'll see the majesty of God and the supremacy of God. But I'm not exactly thinking about God's righteousness because that's not what it testifies of. There are some things about God that creation does not reveal. There are some things about God that creation does reveal. So that's what he says here. Look at because that which may be known of God those things that can be known of God through creation, he says here, is what? Manifest in them. Now, there are some who would argue that certain attributes, such as God's righteousness and long-suffering and goodness, can be seen in God's providential workings. And Paul makes mentions of that in chapter 2. Look at it, verse number 4. And I'm going to call on... Sister Bernice, Romans chapter 2, verse number 4. Would you read that for me, please? Very good, sister. Now I'm going to ask you a question. There are a list of what we would call characteristics of God here. Can you name them? Very good. And one more. Goodness. You got it. Very good, young lady. She says, if you call me young lady the rest of the night, you can call on me the rest of the night. Ain't that right? So, what Paul talking about? He's talking about the providence of God in chapter 2. But he's not talking about the providence of God in chapter 1. There are certain attributes of God seen in God's providence. How he takes care of us, Right? But creation itself is not a testimony to that. Now, Paul is not arguing at this moment in, in chapter 1 with such providence in mind. Because the eternal power and Godhead has to be assumed as a prerequisite first. In other words... One must believe in the existence of God first before he can believe in the providence of God. That's why Paul's not talking about the providence of God in chapter 1. Alright? Now let's look at the rest of this verse. Because that which can be known of God is currently being manifested within them. The word manifested is... A neuter adjective. What is it referring to? Because that which can be known of God is manifested within them. There is an intuitive knowledge of God given to every man through the testimony of creation which he himself seeks to suppress. You say, why are you using the word suppress? Because verse 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth or literally suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So here you have an intuitive... God has put something in man when he was created... And when he set forth creation before his eyes, he put something in man to make the connection. There is an intuitive knowledge of God that that 
man that was created could see the things of God in creation. Joshua, do you have your Bible open? I want you to turn to John chapter 1. I don't get to do this to him very often, so I'm going to take advantage of it just because I like him. Those of you that don't know, he's my son. John 1, Josh, I want you to read out loud. Verse 4, 5, and 9. Very good, son. I want you to pay attention to verse 9. That was the true light. What light are we talking about? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is called the light of the world. And he's the one that John's talking about in verses 4 and 5. Who is he talking about? He said, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. How was the life? This was a living light. This was not like light from a flashlight, light from the bulbs we have in our ceiling here. This light was the product of eternal life. This was living light. Light that was alive. Light that was alive eternally. It's living light that has always been around. And this light is Jesus Christ. And what does it say here? It says here in verse number 4 that the life was the light of man. This living light was a light to man. And it shined in darkness and darkness could not comprehend it. But look also what it says. This, that was the true light which lighted every man. Every man that's born of Adam has a light given to them. And that light is an intuitive knowledge of God. It is provided to every sinner by Jesus Christ himself. So he's born with a certain amount of knowledge about God. And when he sees created, did you ever watch little boys and girls? When you happen to get them away from the PlayStation, you let them romp around in the outdoors and in the woods, and and behold the wonders, how gaga they get over by all the other things they see. I remember when I was a boy, I played with bugs. That was my thing. I would collect bees, and I'd collect flies, and I'd collect praying mantises, and I would collect... Ants. Oh, I loved ants. And I'd get a bunch of ants, and I'd step on the bumblebees, and I'd throw the bumblebee in there while it's still alive. I'd watch ants just tear it to pieces. That was, the, that was my thing. I would spend all day playing with bugs. I know. I didn't have a puppy to play with like the rest of y'all. I played with bugs. But I was enamored with creation, and it was some of them bugs got a hold of me, and I found out it was a, I don't need to be playing with no more. Uh, for example, a wasp nest, a hornet's nest in the ground. I, gee, I wonder what would happen once I covered this thing with a rock. I found out, screaming all the way inside the house. So, do you not see the awe and the wonder of little boys and girls when they see and then use there is the opportunity to talk to them about God the Creator. God made this thing. 
God made these bugs. God made the one that, the thing that could jump over fences, eight foot fences, were right this big and go through a briar patch that I couldn't crawl through. This is an intuitive or instinctive knowledge of God. And it exists. Turn back to Romans 1. It exists because God, what does it say? Has showed it or manifested it unto them. This word manifested is the same Greek word as the former sentence, or the former uh, clause here. It says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. The word showed is the same Greek word translated manifest just before it. So, because that which may be known of God is shown in them, for God hath showed it unto them, or you could translate it, because that which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God hath manifested it unto them. It's the same Greek word. So, this intuitive or instinctive knowledge of God exists because God hath showed it or manifested it unto them. This word manifested is the verb form of the preceding adjective that we just made reference to. It's in the aorist indicative active tense. This intuitive knowledge of God is the result of a specific period of time in which God went out of his way to cause men to see the things of God, the things of God in creation. He didn't simply hang this stuff out there just for them to guess at it. He taught them something. He did not simply hang truth before their eyes. Apart from making a proper connection of that truth within their hearts, Paul explains this connection further in the next verse. Look at it. Verse number 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Verse 20. Look at this phrase for the invisible things of Him. Now, there is a certain word that describes the characteristics of God that are invisible. It's a theological term that we've used many a times. Does anybody know what it is? I'm going to give you a clue. Begins with, begins with an A. It's a ten-letter word. Anybody want to buy a vowel? All right. There's a certain theological term we've used to describe the invisible characteristics of God. No. Huh? No. But it does have two T's to it. Huh? Attributes. Remember that word? Attributes. Okay. So, the invisible things of God, verse 20, refers to the invisible attributes or characteristics of God that are signed 
to be revealed through creation. Now, we just discussed that there's some things about God's attributes that are invisible, that are revealed in creation. There's some attributes that are not revealed through creation. It requires a special revelation from God. What special revelation of God are we talking about? The Bible. Okay, so look at this. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world were not revealed from the act of creation itself. Now put your thinking caps on. How could this not be? How can it be that the attributes of God could not be revealed by the very moment creation took place? It is so simple. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna choke me for not knowing this answer. Just think about it. What? Was there anybody there that actually saw this? And the answer is what? Nobody was there. So Paul's not talking about the very moment creation took place. He's talking about what happened. There was something that took place after man was created. You understand? So, these invisible things were not revealed from the act of creation itself. Because mankind was not present at that particular moment. What is meant, therefore, is that there are certain attributes of God that are revealed through the material things which have been created, but they are restricted in the amount of truth offered. We talked about general revelation. It is restricted. Special revelation is not. It's the full shebang. And so when Jesus came to reveal to us who the Father is, he manifested the Father in totality in his glory. He held nothing back. Special revelation. And we know that to be the case because we have a Bible. And it teaches us this. If we did not have the Bible, we are as dumb as a rock, aren't we? But praise God! We got a Bible that talks to us about special revelation. And if you want to know who God is, look in the Bible. It is the Bible about God. From God. Written by God. The spectrum of God's attributes is provided, therefore, but is not inclusive. But it manifests enough of the basic truths about God. We're talking about general revelation. It only manifests enough of the basic truths about God to make men both responsible and accountable without possessing any saving capabilities. So it's restrictive. It is not all-inclusive. And it, can, it does not have power to save you. This is how helpless the sinner is. God has given him a certain amount of light, a certain amount of truth. And what has he done with it? I could ask you this question. 
of all the advantages you've had, godly parents, great preachers, a godly husband, a godly wife, what have you done with the truth that God's given you? Have you wasted it? Have you cast it aside as an unholy thing? Have you forgotten everything that God has showed you? Do you not understand that the things that God has showed you were designed to save your soul? And yet if you cast these things aside, what are you going to do? You can't hide behind the salvation of your husband. You can't hide behind someone else's profession, not even your wife, not your mother, not your father. You have got to be accountable and responsible to the truth that God gave you. And if you rejected that truth and you discounted it and you threw it aside, if you disregarded it and suppressed it like Paul says these people did, you are going to be damned. And the wrath of God's invisible. You can't smell it, taste it, hear it, or touch it. But the bound man is not safe just because the guillotine hasn't dropped. You're on death row. And God has given you a certain amount of truth. And he won't give you another ounce until you respond to God with the truth that he has given you. Do you understand how serious this is? The truth will set you free, provided you obey the truth God gave you. The bottom line is that the light of creation is incapable of itself in the salvation of the souls of men. Therefore, there must be a special revelation of God to instruct men concerning the terms of salvation which has only been provided by the Word of God and His Gospel. If there's any interest in you right now about being saved, you must respond to the truth that God's given you, and if I were you, I would get on my bony knees and just beg God to save me, and reveal Himself to me. Please, God, reveal some truth to me. I need you to talk to me. And don't you rest until God has. But you're not going to hear from God until you start seeking after God in the book and listening to preaching that will deal with your soul. Note the rest of it. For the invisible things of Him, from the creation of the world, are clearly, what? Seen. This refers to the fact that it was impossible for the early generations. We're talking about the antediluvian race. Remember that big term? It was impossible for them to mistake the clear message of God that was testified in creation concerning his existence and creatorship. Note this phrase. This is huge. Being understood by the things that are made. This is a declaration by Paul that mankind as a whole 
made the right conclusions between creation and its creator. They understood exactly what God intended to say concerning himself by the things which he had made. And therefore the testimony of God was clear to them and their original conclusions were not false. Sinners can have a right knowledge of God and still go to hell. It would scare you if you knew how much you can know about God and the Bible and still go to hell. A man could get so close to Calvary that he could feel the splinters of the cross and still go to hell. Do you understand how far in the religion you can go as a church member and still go to hell? They understood very clearly the truth concerning, what does Paul say here? God's eternal power and Godhead, meaning his divine nature and his eternal existence. Now, had anyone presented to these early lost pagans the concept that they had originated from monkeys, they would have laughed in their face. Because they understood God's eternality and his, and his Godhead. They didn't have to deal with the doctrine of evolution. They didn't have to contend with the philosophies of men, Freudism, and all the other false religions that are out there, and the mysticism that's out there. Science falsely so-called, Paul says, they had virgin territory they were working with. They understood what God meant when he testified to them the existence of God's power and Godhead through creation. Now they perverted the knowledge, but they did, they did not deny the existence of God. They just created a different one and assigned him with those responsibilities. Well, if you were to go to them and tell them you came from a chimpanzee, they would have laughed at you. They had more knowledge of God than that. In fact, they had more knowledge of God than most church members do. Based upon the intuitive knowledge of God, God gave them through creation. They didn't have to contend with all the lies you and I have to contend with the moment we are born. In addition, Paul's not saying here that the power of God was eternally creating all things, making the act of creation eternal. God was not eternally creating. That's not what he's saying here. But rather they understood that God's power is eternal, implying that God himself, who possessed such power, was also eternal qualifying himself as God Almighty. And having understood these divine truths, they conceptually changed his nature through idolatry and gave to him different names expressing such. It must be noted that eternality, the eternal nature, 
is one of the key attributes of God that makes both the Father God and the Son God, sharing the same eternal essence and the same eternity. I just unloaded on you a whole bunch of theology. I'm trying to feed the sheep of God. I'm trying to impress upon you the attributes of God's eternality. Because it's in our text. Creation testifies of the eternal nature of God, the vastness of God, the transcendence of God. And again, go outside on a cold, wintry night with a cup of cappuccino and just spend an hour or two out there and just gaze. That's where you're headed, dear saint of God. Up above the heavens to a kingdom and a world that's beyond, beyond them to a vastness that'll make you sense and feel how small you really are before the greatness of Almighty God. This is the reason why the Jehovah Witness Deny that Jesus Christ is eternal. Why would they do that? You have any ideas, Brother Todd? About you, Sister Gaida. Oh, we ain't talking about your brother. Don't drag him in this. All right, uh, let's go. We're going somewhere. Hang on now. Yeah, I know that. But why do they deny the eternality of Jesus Christ? They don't believe he's God. So what do they say, Brother Ron? Well, they say that he was created. And if he's created, he's not eternal. That's the reason why they won't say Jesus is eternal. But we believe the Bible says that he is. Praise God. He shares the same eternal essence and the same eternity with the Father. Christ, however, was not created. He was eternally... You're going to have to have your heads on now. Think. Christ, however, was not created. He was eternally begotten from the Father, which was in an event that took place between two eternal beings. They had no beginning... No end, but was an accomplished fact. It was an event of which both persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son, were eternally conscious of. But an event of which Jesus Christ himself referenced. He speaks of this, because he was there. John chapter 6, verse 57 and 58. Well, Brother Archie, sounds to me like you're going to have to come back next week. I know it breaks your heart. John 6, verse 57, 58. I want to read it to you. This, if you, if you understand what I just said, these verses will make sense to you. Because this is what he's saying. He's making reference to the begetting of the Father, of the, of the Son by the Father. Listen to this. 
having no beginning and no end, but it was an accomplished fact, and both the Eternal Father and the Eternal Son were, west, were, te- were witnesses of this. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, by the Father, as he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. He's making reference where he received his eternal life. Verse 57. It had no beginning, no end. Now compare that with chapter 16. John is the only, only writer of the Gospels that makes reference to this. He had an insight concerning Jesus Christ that the other three Gospels do not testify of. And that is, he's defining for us in the Gospel of John what he means when he says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God, as it is stated in chapter 1, verse 1. But Jesus goes into detail about what, he, what it means to be eternally begotten. Okay? Chapter 16, verses 27 and 28. For the, Father loved, for the Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me and believed that it came out from the Father. Out from the essence of the Father. I can't explain this without running into heresy. But Jesus said it. Only he can understand it. Because he's of the same mind as the Father. He is just as infinite as the Father. He's talking to mere mortals about something that only an eternal being can understand. This is mind-blowing. Don't ask me to explain this. I'm just giving you the Scripture. Okay? Note further. 28, I came forth from the Father. That's not saying the same thing as being sent from. And I come into the world, again I leave the world and go back to the Father. To mortals, Paul calls this the mystery of godliness. It's a mystery, folks. Why do we even have to cover this? Because Jesus said it. Okay? I don't understand it. Jesus Christ was never created. Yet there was something that took place between the Father and the Son, words can't describe He always has been. There is an eternal Father, and there has to be an eternal Son. If the the Son of God had ever ceased to be the Son of God, then the Father would never have been eternal. You have to have an eternal Father and a Son. Are you understanding? This general revelation of God's eternality, as it is displayed, I just want to give you a little theology to go with the truth of God's eternality as put on display through creation. That was my purpose tonight. This general revelation of God's eternality and Godhead makes all men both responsible and accountable because they are without excuse, it says. Paul states that this general revelation makes all men responsible to certain duties, obligations, or chores. 
The duties implied in Romans 1 are the recognition of God as Creator, particularly His eternal power, Godhead, and His due benevolence, worship, and humble obedience. I want to turn to Luke 17. Brother Todd, now here's the thing. The things that were said tonight were said very carefully and it was designed to blow you away about the knowledge of God. And we're dealing with someone we don't understand. But that knowledge ought to provoke worship and benevolence. I want, Todd, I want you to read verse chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. All right, so... The servants out there slaving in the field in the hot sun all the day long. Does he catch a break when he comes back in the master's house just because he's tired? The answer is no. But he picks up his duties and he serves the master. And when asked, his proper response is, it is my responsibility to do this. This is my duty. So when we contemplate the attributes of God, things that we can't possibly understand, I know I overwhelm. I can tell by some of the faces I've overwhelmed my own thinking saying these things. But I have meditated on this for a long time. These things about God, the Father, God the Son, and the only thing I can do is just shake my head, brother, and say, "I don't get this. I don't understand this." What should this do? This means that I ought to be so in love with this Creator God, so raptured with Him, that my benevolent love should be so true and faithful that even when I'm tired, I have a certain duty. And He expects that of us. Jesus laid this parable out for a reason. Yes, we're aged, but you have a duty. Lastly, the general revelation of God's creation not only makes us responsible, it makes us accountable. Look at the very tail end of 20C. Romans 1, last part, and I'm going to be closing. You've been very patient with me, and I'm very, very grateful. There's no way that I could have covered this any other way. Romans 1, verse 20c. It says here, Even His eternal power and God, 20c, so that they are without excuse. The general revelation of God's creation also makes all men accountable. Accountability is different from responsibility. Accountability is what happens after a situation has already occurred. It implies consequences in reference to the duties expected. It implies an undesirable outcome or result. Men thus are accountable to God based upon His attributes revealed in creation for their failed duties. Now, how are you and I going to escape, the Hebrew writer says, when we reject 
the special revelation of God when those who are rejecting the general relationship of God are going to hell with less light than you have. That's all I have tonight. All right, I need someone to close in prayer.